Hello, fellow innovators. This is Patrick Emmons. And this is Shelley Nelson. Welcome to the Innovation and the Digital Enterprise Podcast, where we interview successful visionaries and leaders, giving you an insight into how they drive and support innovation within their organizations. Today, we're welcoming Dr. Mick Kirsten to the show. Mick is the founder and CEO of TaskTop. TaskTop is an organization where he's created a model and tools for connecting the end-to-end software value stream. In 2018, Mick launched his book, Project to Product, Introducing the Flow Framework with concepts to help drive software at the pace of organizations. Uh, I met Mick a couple years back at the DevOps Enterprise Summit. He had this presentation that I can tell you just knocked people on their butts. Uh, Really, it was was like, in my opinion, it was uh, the Rosetta Stone for software development of how do you communicate between business, development, and operations. And it really, it, it really set the audience on fire. It was great a presentation. I've gotten to know Mick over the couple of years, past couple of years. Uh, if you get a chance, he's got plenty of stuff on YouTube you should check out. But Mick, really excited to have you on the show today. Uh, I think what you and your team over at TazTop are doing really uh, hits it on the, the nail on the head of why we started the podcast. So it's really exciting to have you on here today. Welcome to the show, Mick. Oh, my pleasure. Great to be here. And thanks, yeah, thanks for that, that Rosetta Stone intro. That's, uh, that's quite something. <laughs> so I'll try, to, I'll try to have the answers live up to that. Okay. So Mick, if you don't mind, can you please share with our listeners, for those who are not aware, what is TaskTop? So TaskTop's a company I founded over a decade ago, uh, right outside of my PhD thesis, where w- what I was doing for that thesis work is looking for sort of the you know, the next 10x improvement in how software is built. And I was working on programming languages, and I realized that we were only seeing incremental improvements on that front. So I thought, okay, how can we really, at enterprise scale, because to me it was really large-scale stuff that was much more interesting, how can we, you know, what would it take, and this is the neat thing when you're doing research, what would it take to go 10x faster, to make software 10x better? And this kind of relates back to what Patrick just said, where I realized it was less around programming languages and the, the technology layers, which are really important. There's been a lot of progress on that front. But it was, there was actually something more that I was finding as I was doing research and analyzing software value streams, so basically how software goes from ideas to, to running code, and realizing that there's something wrong with this communication, this collaboration, this flow and feedback of information, uh, to go back to that Rosetta Stone point. And so I started doing research around these disconnects between software and the value stream. First, as research, then my PC supervisor and I created TaskTop as a vehicle to really commercialize that research. And the really neat part of that was to learn more and more. So we've been able to gather companies' uh, data, learn from them, have a lot of discussions with IT leaders on where the bottlenecks are in their value streams, what's really getting in the way of large transformations, and why is it so much harder to build software in a large enterprise than it is in a small startup or in a tech-native company. And really, that's been passed up, is this journey of providing the tooling and infrastructure to measure, analyze, and then optimize value streams and to really connect the people doing that work, and most recently, to make all of that work visible through these these flow metrics that came out of the flow framework that I put into the project and product book. So... That, yeah, that's passed up in a nutshell, and I'm just hoping that the, well, and thankfully I'm increasingly seeing that the work we're doing is helping us better understand what it takes to, to scale effective software delivery. 
Yeah, one of the concepts that I really think that uh, TASTOP, from my perspective, really solves is, you know, there's so many buzzwords thrown around in improving software capability in organizations, right? Digital uh, delivery of value to the customer is what, you know, you touch on in your book uh, and in in everything around TASTOP, around the bottlenecks, you know, you know the, the constraints and how do we actually get the flow moving in the right direction. Um, from your background, I know having worked uh, closely with with folks over at BMW, you know, one of the concepts I think is really interesting is how the value streams are really defined around the, the organization or the outcomes. Not so much, you know, we focus on features, but we don't focus on our capability to provide features. If you could share some of your, your the story around that, I think that'd be really great. Yeah, absolutely. And- you know, for me, since publishing Project to Product, I've, I've found a, a consistent theme in terms of you know the problems that we see with large-scale software delivery versus you know let's say advanced manufacturing. And the interesting thing is when you look at mature production domains like manufacturing, there's a very clear sense of measuring the flow of value, right? And that's why I found that the core analogy is so useful to use because everyone kind of gets it when you see this, you know, or imagine this car moving along the assembly line and getting more and more value as it's built up and the organization wanting to, to for that to happen with more quality, uh, more quickly uh, and more reliably, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty clear metaphor. Yet what I realized both in my research and then in, uh, in all of our work with, with large enterprise organizations is that in software, there is no consistent measure of value. So when we try to take those principles, of you know doing a gemba walk right going to where the work is done where work happens it's just fascinating that if we're only looking at the cost of work or problems or problems with work where are people getting stuck you know what's why do we need so many people on, on this particular project over here and so on we're not getting a picture of value we're just getting a picture of costs and activities so the really the mission for me the big picture mission was to help as it help the industry define a consistent measure of value and of the flow of that value so with the inspiration of manufacturing, where again, that flow is very clear, uh, to what we're doing with software, which is measuring the, the flow of value for intangible things. There's no car. You know, we, we have no sense of whether you know, the car got stuck or had a quality problem, had to be moved off the line into the rework area. Uh, none of that is as visible. Now, my experience as a developer were very different because as a developer, you know, writing code, it does not feel that intangible, right? It's, it's not, it, there's definitely similarities for me to building Lego blocks as I was just you know doing in the evening with my children in terms of what writing code feels like, right? You're constructing things, you're constructing them you know, with an editor, but you're actually constructing these things that, that you know, feel like they have a, a reality to you, even though it's not a, a tangible reality. So it was a really interesting thing to me is that as a developer, being part of the value stream, all of that work you know, is visible. You know if your tests are passing, you know if you've deployed something or having trouble deploying it. And the problem became is how, how can we make that visible to what a Gemba walk is supposed to be, which is to make it visible to executives. Because if executives have a very different picture of what code is, what good quality software is, what it takes to make software better, such as needing to invest in tech debt, needing to invest in improving your APIs and your automation and so on. If we don't have that same picture, if you know executives are just seeing the lens of cost and not seeing the, the things through the lens of what it takes to deliver value and to improve over time, then we basically we're, we're on completely different pages for the discussion. We're, we don't have that Rosetta Stone. So my goal was really say, okay, let's let's take the 
in terms of what we've learned as, as software developers, as uh, SREs, as practitioners uh, in software delivery, let's take the things that we know represent value in software and let's elevate them in a way that the executives, the business can understand. And let's make sure that's always oriented around the way customers pull value uh, from the organization, not around activities such as you know spinning up and down projects and so on. So that was really the goal of the flow framework is uh, that software development is measurable, that it is, even though it's intangible, it, it, you can make it visible. And the, you, know, you, can, you can see how workflows, see how it gets stuck. And I've spent years and years creating visualizations around this. Uh, so let's create as a, a, a simple a framework as possible to make executives part of that conversation, not feel like they have to go to every single hackathon uh, to have any sense of what's going on, but then go back to their org charts to look at how they're going to you know, slice that one person off every team to reduce costs, right? Like there's this, this, this massive mismatch between looking at an org chart and trying to understand the software organization and actually understanding how to deliver value within the software organizations. That's, that's really the goal of the flow framework is to bridge that gap. Mick, speaking of measurement, we talked the other day about your teams and how they're being measured. Um, how have they responded to that? Yeah, so this is, I think yeah, measurement is, uh, is, is always an interesting thing because as soon as you put in place a measurement in a business context, of course, everyone tries to manage to it, right? You know, think about the last time you had a weird MBO set or anything of that sort. And for me, Sam Guggenheimer, uh, who's now one of the important guru in our industry, uh, now retired from Microsoft, he told me the story of bug math at Microsoft, where the you know, leaders should have put in place sort of the ideal bell curve of how many priority one versus priority two versus priority three defects there should be. So what happened next? And you, know, you have the ideal with, you, know, you wouldn't have too many P1s, right? In the ideal scenario. So what happens next is very obvious, right? Is you just never create P1 defects unless you, know, you look at and everything becomes a P2 or, 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 or lower uh, because this bug math, this, this, was, this thing was called bug math, um, this bug math is driving behavior, but it's driving behavior in a way that's masking valuable information because you actually want to know what your P1s are. So, you know, Sam did get me thinking as he was reviewing early versions of the flow framework of, you know, making sure that two things. One is that the, the metrics are meaningful, not just to leadership. And actually in our product that implements the flow framework, test.viz, you know, is one of my favorite mottos now is, is visibility for leadership that's actionable for teams. Because if the visibility is not relevant to the teams, they're not going to you know, spend their time making their work more visible. But if that visibility is actually showing where a team is blocked and waiting on a meeting that keeps getting rescheduled or waiting for some environment that they were supposed to get three months ago or, or three weeks ago, uh, once it's meaningful for them, well, you can actually get this flywheel of visibility and everyone being on the same page in terms of what it takes to, to deliver more software and to do it in a more fulfilling and joyful way. Because in the end, developers prefer writing cool software that gets released and used than you know, doing menial tasks or, or waiting for input for, you know, yet another week from somebody. So to me, the key thing was, and I think this is where so many metrics and visibility initiatives have failed. One is A, not understanding how they'll get gamed, how the metrics will get gamed, uh, and B, not making the metrics and, and, and measurements meaningful to the people doing the work. And so really, my goal with the Flow Framework was, was to avoid both those fit, pitfalls. So the first pitfall is because the flow framework is around, all around tracking these flow items, which you know the equivalent of cars moving down a, an assembly line, but with software and their their feature defects, risks, and bets. And so the key thing is the way that you game the flow framework, so you make your flow velocity look better or your flow time look better, 
is to break down your flow items into small chunks. So to make small batch sizes. And so as soon as that starts happening, you've already won, right? Because one of the big problems is that work is not broken into small enough chunks. And so you actually can't track where things are stuck, where things are waiting, where a, a developer, someone on the business side is frustrated and so on. So I tried to build in that gaming to be actually a positive aspect of the flow frame down negative one. Now, of course, if teams now break up and, and change to you know, a, a, a single line of code into a user story, of course, you'll end up with too many flow items showing, but they tend not to do that because it's, you know, it's a pain. You don't want to break down work too small. The problem is actually we tend not to break down big work like business ethics small enough or technical debt work where some piece of technical debt is now on like third release cycle and no one really has a sense of how much effort's got into it, how much more needs to go into it and so on. So the one thing was to make sure that the way to game this, this way of measuring was, was positive. And you know, that's absolutely my experience from open source where the way that we were working on when I was doing open source and taking a lot of community contributions, I, I did gamify it, right? We basically said, if you, I forget the exact numbers, but if you as an external person anywhere on the planet who, who are contributing to this open source project I was working on, the, the Mylon project, I think if you go over two dozen uh, features or defects done, you'll get commit rights. That's it. You've done, you've actually contributed that much flow to the project, you're getting commit and, and uh, your changes were accepted. Your pull requests were taken. You're getting commit rights. So it's a kind of a fun gamification. You know, you're, you're doing more. You're you're earning your rights and so on. And we would always publish scoreboards and and so on. So when used in the right way, it, it actually works really well. Um, when used in the wrong ways, it doesn't. But the, the whole point is to just to, just to incentivize those small batch sizes. Uh, and then the other thing is, it's it's got to be meaning again meaningful for the teams. So, and the way that that happens in the flow framework is it almost immediately. Now this is kind of uh, much more obvious when you see a deployment of it, but almost immediately, whenever we've deployed the flow framework to the customer, too much width, which was one of the flow metrics, so which work in progress, and it's, it's called flow load in the flow framework, is visible almost instantly. That too much work has been dumped onto the backlogs of the team or onto the release, and there's no way of finishing this work, and then more sticking on, and there are more discussions about what should get done and force trading and so on, right? So almost immediately, the teams see a benefit that making their work visible is going to help reduce their whip so they can actually get more done um, rather than talk about getting more done. And you know, they can start finishing rather than and, and stop starting. So, so I think that's the key thing is to, that the metrics need to create a virtuous cycle. Also to make the kinds of work that normally are not visible, such as investments in tech debt reduction for teams to claim credit for those. So that's one of its, its main goals is to make tech debt visible to the business side. Because it's a it's a critical to invest in that and to take that down uh, to make investment to platform components, so the things that business products build on or business applications build on to make that visible. Make sure those those products, those internal products and APIs and and shared services and platforms that they have their own backlogs because those those are those are key things to invest and often gets key areas to invest and often gets ignored. So yeah, that's that's really been the approach uh, in terms of avoiding those pitfalls that we see on metrics. So. And there's, I guess, I guess there's one more that's interesting, which is, I think no matter what, any kind of visibility systems can be used in the wrong ways, right? If they're, uh, if they're if you've got a low trust organization or something of that sort, and we know that more engaged employees produce better work, make happier customers, write better code, write more code, and so on. Which is why I actually made employee happiness one of the top, the the metrics on the flow framework. 
is that if you're, and you know, we've seen this, right? We've seen cases where uh, internally at TASDAP, we're pushing so hard, the major launch event put, puts a lot of pressure on the team, their happiness goes down and that's visible in the metrics. And we know then, you know, that, that the leaders of those teams need to do some extra work with the teams, need to give them some breathing room or whatever the case may be. So just as a kind of a state, not just that as both a safety valve, because we are talking metrics here, uh, I decided that that measuring the happiness of teams and tracking it was absolutely key, again, to, to create this virtual virtuous feedback loop. It's great. The, the two parts that I, I took out of that is one, uh, when you think about RPMs, right? Your, your machine is running so hot with the people, obviously you're, you're going to blow a rod. Something's going to happen, right? The engine's going to seize. It can't, it can't go that fast. And being able to visibly demonstrate that to the decision makers, because I think we all see what happens in these death marches is a profound misunderstanding of the fractures that you're generating. That without an understanding of like, why is that occurring? Executives and leadership are like, well, you know, people need to toughen up. And it's like, that's that's not really what's going on. This isn't a shortness. This isn't a lack of, of integrity or uh, in, internal fortitude. This is human capacity for uh, I'm, I'm exhausted. This is too much. You've pushed this too far to a healthy state. So with that kind of mindset, is that is the challenge that you see from like an understanding of technical debt and the elastic capacity of human ability from a software development standpoint, are those things that like tech native companies, software native companies really understand? And is that one of the critical things that as these organizations are shifting to becoming more of a software focused organization that they need to learn? Yeah. So I think that you, you get the challenge, Patrick, right? Which is that, so you get that. You get the fact that someone's not going to do their best creative work after working all night. They're actually going to end up having four days of bad productivity. And then and then potentially, you know, this gets exacerbated, leads to some toxicity and so on. So, yes, I think what's happened is that digital native organizations, their leaders, their teams, they've evolved in such a way that these dynamics are just kind of innate, right? If you've got a, some kind of, I know talent agency. You're not, you're going to realize that people are not going to do their their best work, their you know their, their best acting or singing um, after you know having done a, some kind of all nighter uh, performing as well, right? So you understand that as soon as you've got creative work in the picture, uh, you need people to, to you, know, you, you need to understand and manage people's energy, and that's what I think great leaders of teams are able to do. Uh, the problem that I saw is that, yes, in tech companies, this is it's all kind of obvious, right? And yes, some companies have better cultures, some, some companies have worse cultures, but because people have grown up in it and understand that software delivery is a creative discipline, they, they just kind of get it. And then, of course, what I was seeing is in large enterprise organizations who have not grown up with that, who've just had IT as this cost center, uh, take a very different mentality. And the mentality is much more, you know, if the engine can rev to 8,000 RPM, let's just keep it at 8,000 RPM. Now, if you don't have a way of seeing, because that's the problem, this is back to that Gemba thing, that that has negative consequences, you're just going to keep it at 8,000 RPM, right? You're going you're gonna to utilize your resources uh, to their maximum effectiveness. The problem is that you've got the completely wrong model because you know, you're pretending that these are robots or fungible resources building a bridge or something, not people doing highly complex and creative teamwork. So again, that was really the reason to do that is to show, and one, here's one of the, the most stark ones and one of the fastest realizations our customers have had. And of course, you know, great leaders, 
like happen to like get this just the way you kind of get it. But the power of this is being able to demonstrate with data is to show when we kept work in progress that high, we got half as much done in that three month cycle as when we reduced it and allowed people to actually manage, you know, have a manageable workload, right? And I think the really neat thing of doing this with data, back to your point on the death marches, is sometimes death marches happen, right? And of course, it's more optimal over time to have zero death marches. You'll actually get more done over time. We get that. But there might be some, you know, company might be hanging on some replatforming, bringing something new to market and so on. So there's this inherent external business pressure that's there. And I think actually exposing those dynamics that if you push the teams that hard, now, of course, after that launch, and they're going to have to deal with defect after defect after defect because this thing is, you know, has performance issues or whatever else is going on. Um, you have a problem, and you have to do something for those people. So, I think the key thing is, and I remember this conversation with Troy Guinness when we were analyzing some of the death marches that he'd been involved with at um, at some of the organizations he worked with, right? He's worked with um, Tableau and Skype and so on. And it's, you know, he gets it. Great engineers leaders get it, get those dynamics of what will happen. And so my goal actually, I'll, this actually this was a late night bar conversation <laughs> that I was having with Troy McGuinness. Um, the it was saying, okay, can we Troy, here, here are the flow items. Is this enough of a tool for you to show? Because you know, you get it. You're a great engineering leader. Um, is this enough of a tool for you to show visually on the chart the effects of what will happen with a death march? To people who've never run software teams, and you know, his answer was yes. And I was okay. We're on to something here, right? Like we're on to the fact that you know people's happiness will go down. You need to deal with that. They'll actually their velocity will be lower. Defects will go higher. You won't have had any chance to deal with tech debt because again, the you know it's not that people want lower productivity by keeping keeping the RPMs at eight thousand. It's just that they don't understand the trade offs, and they don't understand the trade offs because they've never seen the dynamics of software delivery firsthand. And that's really the goal. That's why it, it, I, I do really like your Rosetta Stone metaphor here, um, which is that it, it allows them to see and reason about those dynamics and actually then make that case with data as well, as, as we know is, is, is important when you're dealing with larger scales. So Mick, you talk about happiness and, and trust, and obviously I think we all know that, that that's key to performance, but what would your recommendation be to these companies that are getting ready to establish these metrics? Do they need to start... Uh, with employee engagement and and see if the happiness and trust factor is there, or do you feel like having these meaningful measurements um, end up creating more trust and happiness? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So my answer is actually no, you don't. I mean, I'd like it if organizations did, but you do not need to start with happiness. So the the really interesting thing is the most effective thing I've seen is, is to just start with flow time, because what happens is if you you know, t- take a product value stream, which means you don't have just the agile team, you have several teams, um, you have people from the business, people from su- support, you've got everything needed to, to deliver on that part of your product portfolio. Um, if you've got everyone focused on, on flow time, uh, you've got everyone looking at the same scorecard. And you're no longer saying devs too slow, or we're always waiting, requirements are always changing, or we never have our operational environments ready, and so on. Uh, you're actually objectively looking at where are our wait states? And just that act of, in a data-driven way, getting rid of finger pointing, whether it's within a team or across team or across silos, and saying, okay, this is what the data is showing us. This is where the weight states are. Let's begin. Let's learn. Let's see what happens if we remove that constraint, right? And we automate this part of the review process, or we staff up our 
um, our UX team or allocate more resources or, or, or something of that sort. So I think there's just, you know, there's tremendous power in having everyone look at the same scorecard. No, like we were, you know, we were done with Dev. It wasn't us. So that's extremely powerful. Now, of course, ideally what you would do is have that connected up, and which is why we always recommend tracking your some kind of happiness or employee engagement score for every value stream, because you'd see that a reduction in flow time actually made people happier. It made their engagement go up. So they're getting, you know, your, your time to market's improved, because that's what flow time measures, and, and people are happier. And then that's a really powerful story, right? And, and that's exactly what happens when, when you take the frustration out of people's days and, and unblock the things that they're waiting on. So yeah, ideally you'd always have happiness there as a guide to see that. Um, I think just just the effect of, of having people looking at the same flow time scorecard on the same dashboard it, in, in itself is powerful. Having had those conversations with clients, you know, uh, uh, using some of the tools that, that TaskTop has out in the marketplace, just to talk about uh, that flow time of like, you know, what is it? And I, I think one, I think the unique perspective that TaskTop brings to the table is that uh, you're looking at it from client identification where, you know, even to the product side, right? So integrating product into this conversation, it's not just an engineering question. It's not just an operations question. It's a product question, right? At what point in time do I identify and prioritize and we decide we're going to take action on this? And even before that, of like, when did it hit the backlog and really start to analyze that the lifetime of this, this work item, what you mentioned, whether it's a feature, a defect, technical debt, or some kind of risk, you know, not analyzing that component, I think has created a lot of blind spots in a lot of organizations that they're not really owning that. And it's, and it's the least structured component or discipline in that, in that value stream that in, in many cases, not always, obviously, but I, I think uh, from a percentage wise, I think a lot of developers know how to do good software engineering. It's really the handoffs between product and development that, that seem to be the, the biggest place where things get dropped. Yeah, exactly. It's so I think, you know, my my experiences match yours, Patrick, and it's it's uh it is in those handoffs. It'll actually also be a, a common place we see it is in dependencies between different product value streams when everything depends on one API, no one's there's not enough resources on it and so on. So it's in handoffs and it's basically in, in dependencies, often where the weak states are. And if you take this data driven approach, then this blameless approach saying, Okay, well, where do we need to invest next? to improve that, the flow time, like where are things queuing up the most, you know, chances are everyone's very happy to actually put some attention there, right? It's not like you're too slow, you're too slow, and, and so on. So I think that that blameless data-driven approach can really help. And, you know, of course, what it tends to do as well is some key people realize that, that that's been the problem all along, that they've got this long upstream weight on the business while it, they think they're getting things too slow. So. I think you know, the key thing there is, is to become you know, more objective, more data-driven, more blameless about it. Um, you have to do that with the business as part of the value stream, right? If it's just IT doing it for itself, it, it's not enough because too many of the weight sets are external to the development teams. Again, be it on a different part of the business, different value stream, uh, platform they're depending on, and so on. Uh, and then, yeah, and then you go from there. Well, and, and that's the, the blameless thing. I use the phrase debugging your software capability. Right. Like, how do you debug it? Where, where do you find the bugs? Where do you find the issues? And to your point, like, and, and I, I'd like to see, you know, you've, you've mentioned a number of times uh, when I've seen you give presentations, the criticality, like how important it is that organizations really do 
tear down that wall between businesses' understanding of how to build software and the decisions that they make and force upon engineering because engineers are nice and they just won't fight a lot, right? And they'll they'll be told, okay, you go do it. And then they do it and they don't really surface the real issues very well. So from your standpoint, you know, I know you've talked about this a lot, you know, moving from Taylorism to these different types of modes of, of, of productivity, right? And looking at what the FANGs are doing, you know, from your experience right now, like where is this like, if you're not doing this, um, it's, it's really kind of a big challenge or threat to your organization's potential future? Yeah. I mean, if you have any competitive dynamics in your market or if any customer delivery pressure, yeah, doing it the old way is just not viable. It's even less viable in, in turbulent economic times as we have right now, in times where more disruption will, will happen. So I think it's just the organizational commitment to get out of Taylor's mode is, is critical to get out of that project and cost center mindset. It's been interesting because I think a lot of organizations have that. Like, the, you know, no one wants to be left behind or their business to tank or their, their cost the balloon with, with no value delivered so or no incremental new value delivered. So I think there, there is. Most companies have that kind of commitment. It's, and it's just now it's a question of turning it into action and how to take that first step. And, you know, Shelly, it's like you were asking, like, how, you know, what do you start measuring? And so, again, I think making sure that you get started somewhere and you prove out the benefits of this because the really interesting thing is when I've seen this implemented, there's quite a bit of low-hanging fruit. And there are quite a few people who already know where the low-hanging fruit is. And there are quite a few people who know that, you know, we've been stuck on this monolith part of our architecture. That's what's slowing us down. They've been saying that for two years. But making the case with data to the business, to leadership, and actually getting another, you know, 20, 30 people on that capability, that's, you know, that's, that's a wonderful thing, right? When, when that actually happens and when you feel like you've been pinning your head against the wall and all of a sudden you've made the case in the right way, to see how this will make everything go faster. You've made it with data um, and, and you've got that organizational investment and commitment. So I think the you know, now more than ever, that, that needs to happen faster. The good thing is now more than ever, I think there's leadership wants to see it happen because more and more business leaders realize that navigating this change requires more business agility than they've, uh, they've had in the past. And, and I think, you know, the good thing is there's there's a set of practices here and a discipline around value stream management that that's exactly how you get it, you know that that charts the path forward, and it, it is interesting because like a lot of companies that they just you know the tech companies have this in place already in various names called you know various different kinds of approaches they've created themselves, but we're now at the at the point in time where you know I think it's it's pretty clear what elevating the things we've learned through agile and DevOps are. And they are around these products and value streams and flow. Um, I guess last question, I know we're getting close on time here, but how do you think COVID um, has impacted some more regulated companies? So I think that one of the hardest things, uh, you know, as a business leader myself and the colleagues I talk to is just the uncertainty, you know, just uncertainty around planning, right? Whether that's because of your particular uh, market where some markets are hit very hard. Uh, whether it's because, you know, uh, in our case with technology, it's actually, or at least, you know, in my end of the market, it's fortunately, it's, 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 it's been a place where there's been a lot more investment, right, in digital transformation and so on. But the uncertainty is whether you're in a better or worse area of the economy, the uncertainty is so high in terms of what will happen next, be it, you know, be it growth and spending or decline and so on. 
So I think the you know one one thing that we've had to do, for example, is a, a task that has actually just shorten our planning cycles to I don't know what they were about ten years ago, because the change the, the rate of change is faster and it, it's been great. It's helped us adapt much more quickly and and we've been very successful with it. So basically, the ability to reallocate uh, resources and people and talent and investment to where you're seeing the most results and then take that feedback. So creating that feedback loop right now between you and the market is critical. And of course, these are all things we've been talking about for a decade. Uh, it's just that now these waterfall planning cycles are longer than major shifts in the economy, right? Be they vaccine driven, be they second wave driven, whatever it may be, be there things changing to different sectors. So you can no longer afford at a business level a waterfall planning cycle which means you need to be able to understand and, and measure your product portfolio, its performance, uh, and be able to adjust, you know, at minimum at a quarterly basis. So I think this is why having that product operating model in place is key to navigating this level of uncertainty and then having this, this feedback loop uh, between you know, the market, delivery, and planning is, is just super critical. And the companies that that have that in place um, are, you know, will have much better chances than those who don't. And of course, then you have to assume that there are companies in your space that, that do have that in place. Because I think, you know, we've now seen that this kind of product-oriented model, tracking flow and business results, is is a solved problem. So I think the, you know, to me, what's what's important is that you know companies, you know, take this seriously. They don't. The, the old ways are no longer acceptable. Um, and that you know we help them collectively as much as we can move as quickly as we can to being these these, these digital product innovators. I'd say it's an exciting time, and I think uh, what I'm seeing uh, from the people that I interact with, you know, as we all recognize, COVID's accelerated things, right? So by twelve to twenty-four, maybe thirty-six months, right? What we thought was going to take that long is is right here now, right? Status quo being pretty safe. You know, seven, eight months ago, uh, it, it's to your point, it's not anymore. And so it does seem like, you know, this is really something everybody should be on top of their you know, top of mind of like how we were building software even eight to 12 months ago isn't going to survive or we're not going to survive because of the way that we we're the engagement necessary with your customers on a digital platform. If you don't have that feedback loop of less than a quarter, less than six months, which is still, there's many companies out there that that is their, that's their, that's their cadence of like, we are putting out new value each six months. And it's to your point, the tectonic shifts of, of customer expectation, uh, they don't last that long. Right. So you're already two evolutions behind by that point. So uh, I really appreciate you coming on, on the, uh, the uh, podcast today. Uh, Always enjoy getting your perspective bring a lot of energy. It's always really brilliant to hear you speak. Uh, I, I love I love your perspective and I, I love what you guys are doing. So for those of you interested in learning more, Mick's book, Project to Product, is available on Amazon. It's been in the top 10 business books there since it was published. It's still, yeah, it's, it's it, the pandemic's actually had it in the top five and top one sometimes. It's, it's, it's yeah, the book got more popular during the during the pandemic, which has been interesting. It's, you know, uh the of course you know, the last thing we want is a pandemic but i think it's it's been it's been helpful to me to see that people are accepting as you said patrick status quo is not good enough and that they owe it to their companies their customers and their staff to drive change much more quickly 
than they have before. Yeah. And I, I think for the innovators out there, the entrepreneurs, the entrepreneurs, really is, status quo is, is in jeopardy. This is ripe opportunity for people who want to go make change, right? When, when top dollar numbers were off the charts, it's hard to make a case. Now it's easy to make a case of what we were doing is not going to survive. So this is a great time to, to step into that void and, and push your organization if, if that's the way you want your career to go and that's who you want to be. So um, thank you so much. I really appreciate it, Mick, coming on and, and talking to us today. Yeah, thanks, Mick. Thank you, Sally. Thank you, Patrick. We also want to thank you, our listeners. We really appreciate everyone taking the time to join us uh, and, and listen to what Mick has to say. And if you'd like to receive new episodes as they're published, you can subscribe by visiting our website at dragonspears.com slash podcast, or find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was sponsored by Dragon Spears and produced by Dante32. 